0: You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today... I am excited to bring you a person who has publicly shared his story of his substance use disorder for decades now. William Cope Moyers wrote his memoir, Broken, in 2006. He has served to put a voice, face, name to substance use disorder and recovery. I have recommended William's book, Broken, to many families along this journey of healing. William does a phenomenal job of sharing his journey with substance use disorder and he offers great insight into the experience of his family surrounding his illness. Please meet William Cope Moyers. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. The biggest awareness I have of, William, your story in this realm is just the power of your book, the book broken. I've referred that to more family members than I can tell you. And I think one of the most powerful parts of your book, other than your authenticity and honesty in sharing your story, was having your parents' involvement be able to hear glimmers of what they were going through that was a pivotal change in what i perceive as the availability of that type of information to the public yeah so yeah. yeah what would you like to share about the journey of writing broken i mean you could share about your journey but i'm really curious about that journey of bringing them into the into the book
1: well thanks for picking up on that margaret i appreciate the opportunity to be with you on your podcast today um uh, you know not too many people have asked me about that element to it and, and by the way, you know broken is 15 or 16 years old it's still in print, fourth printing uh, and that's all great but it it is a, a segment of my life i've had 15 or 16 years since then. And I've had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows as a person in recovery. And maybe we can talk about that later. But broken does resonate, not just with people who are um, struggling with or trying to overcome a substance use disorder, but with family members. And a big part of that is because uh, my parents are so formative in my story, just like they are in my journey. Um, And I think the reason why they're formative in that book is because they allowed themselves to be part of it. They gave me, quote, permission, close quote, not only to share our interactions and our experiences, but also really critically to share their letters, particularly my father's letters. You know, we don't write letters as a a species much anymore. Um, And and yet letter writing um, is important to communications uh, or was. And my father's letters, he being a journalist, Bill Moyers, um, he wrote me lots of letters going up. And because he's my dad and because he matters, I could never dispose of those letters. So I kept them and I saved them in a big camp trunk, one of those shipping trunks. And um, and so when I wrote Broken, I, I began to delve into those letters and I asked him if I could have permission to use them. Um, and he said, yes, with one exception. There's one letter that he didn't ask me, to sh- one that didn't want me to share. And I respected that. So the authenticity of my story is also the authenticity of a family struggle right. with this illness. And as you know, through your own experiences, um, um, addiction is a family illness. Mm-hmm. So you know, I dedicated my my book to them. I said to my to my parents who've been with me every step of the way, and they have been. And by the way, my parents are still living. Um, my dad is eighty seven. My mother's eighty six. They've been married for sixty seven years. Wow. They're in declining health, but I still see them, and they're still formative in my life. Even though today I'm sixty two, you know. Um, so uh, they're still walking with me, one step at a time.
0: And w- one of the things that that came across in the Evolution of your book was their journey to understanding it was a family disease, right? Which is a journey every family goes through. It's very often get them the good care, which they're invested in doing, and then they'll be okay. But they also embraced their own education and support through family programs, through avenues like that. Is that correct?
1: Yes. I think they were reluctant to to embrace that, not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't understand that they needed to. Um, Yet, I mean, I think they had a fundamental understanding. I mean, they're learned people. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a fundamental understanding of their son's uh, addiction in um, not only his life, i.e. me, but their own lives. I mean, addiction takes a terrible toll on everybody that loves the addict or the alcoholic. I don't think they quite grasped that they needed to be active participants in the process, not so much for my benefit, although it benefited me, but for their benefit. Because as we know, particularly with the opioid epidemic, where unprecedented numbers of people are dying from this illness, the loved one, whether it's a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, a sibling, a significant other, that person needs to recover even when the addict or the alcoholic doesn't recover or worst dies. Um, And I think my parents sort of came to that slowly through an evolution, which is endemic, I think, with lots of family members. Uh, My parents came to the family program at Hazelden in the fall of 89, uh, when I was uh, treated there 32 years ago right now. And that began the journey for them. But Margaret, I've got to tell you, that was not the sort of light bulb moment for them. That moment came not until 1994, when after multiple treatments and several years of abstinence, I was not recovering in the context of how I recovered today, but I was not using. I relapsed. I had a recurrence of my use. And that jarred my parents, because by that time, I was a father to two little baby boys, um, and married to a woman who was in recovery herself. And yet, despite all of those reasons for me to, you know, stay recovered, I didn't. Sure. And it shook them to their core uh, because while they had a fundamental understanding of the illness, they did not really yet grasp that recovery has to endure no matter what. And um, and I had sort of thrown it away, if you will, uh, thrown away my relationship with my children, the relationship with my uh, sober wife, the relationship with my own recovery, my relationship with my job at CNN. I threw all that away to go get high again in a crack house. And that shook them, shook them to the core. And it was through that family experience at a treatment center in Atlanta called Ridgeview um, that they sort of got the rest of the experience.
0: That's a very valuable piece of information to share. I think that, you know, there's often the theory of one and done versus yes. uh, relapse is a symptom of this disease that not everyone experiences. But if we don't work our program, it's a very real possibility. And so for families, I always parallel it to their relapse process. Yes. Right? Yes. So your parents had uh, an exposure. Gain some valuable insight, I'm sure, from their first experience in a family program. And then you stabilized in your abstinence to a point that they were probably like, which every family does. And if we don't maintain our vigilance to our family recovery, when that relapse happens, that spiral for everybody.
1: Yes. Yes, and, and then for them, there was one more piece of it, and uh, we were talking off-microphone about um, people that we know from the past um, and how it was I ultimately got to Hazelden, but I had a occurrence of my use in the fall of 94, October 12th of 94 was when I came out of what I hope is my last crack house, last time I had a drink, um, October of 94. And that, of course, that, that relapse experience and their family experience were jarring. But then there was this last piece, which is that shortly thereafter, um, my mother was recruited to be on the board of Hazelland at that time. I didn't work for Hazelland I was still in Atlanta, but she got recruited up to work to come to the board. And she became a member of the board of trustees in about 1994, 95. And it was while she was a trustee. Again, I wasn't working at Hazelden yet, that's another story, but she came to Center City, Minnesota um, to hear a lecture by, at that time, the head of the National Institutes of Health, Steve, Dr. Stephen Hyman. And it was Dr. Hyman who spoke about the nature of addiction being a brain disease. In other words, having its origins in the brain, though, as we know, it's a lot of other things too. And it was that experience, that, that lecture that my mother heard that opened her eyes to how it was that I relapsed, that craving brain. Again, it didn't excuse the things I did, but it helped to explain them. And that was another one of those eye-opening moments for Judith Moyers. And then she went back to New York and told her husband, Bill Moyers, my dad, the same thing. And out of that experience came a five-part series on PBS um, called Moyers on Addiction, Close to Home. And um and that sort of opened the eyes of the nation to the fact that addiction is an illness with a brain component. And it is a family disease. There have been lots of other people who've been talking about that. But I think it was my parents' experience as parents and also as the journalists that they've been for a long time, that they put those two things together and they had that sort of uh, that aha moment, yes. which was not only important for them personally in their own recoveries, but important for the nation as we sort of came to terms with addiction as a relapsing chronic disease that has its torsions in the brain.
0: Service is obviously a vital part of your recovery, apparently theirs, because just speaking to that, that they were willing to do that work, to share that work, to help more people who would never get exposed to it understand this disease. If you are listening to this podcast, finding it helpful, but long for more support please go to my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com and sign up to receive your complimentary copy of Healthy Strategies for Family Members to Cope and Even Thrive Through Addiction. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. I'm curious, William, to go back to what you said. um, When you had your last return to use, You were married and with someone who's in recovery and two children and you shared you were abstinent, but don't work the recovery you work now. And you are now abstinent. How long? How long have you been in recovery since then?
1: Well, I've been committed to my recovery, Margaret, since the morning of October the 12th of 1994 when I came out of that crack house. So, you know, I've been been walking that walk, imperfectly, but walking that walk, um, since that morning. As many things that are important to me as they are, nothing's more important than my continued recovery. And so I've been in recovery, I mean, in in committed recovery since that date, October 12th of 94.
0: And when you look at pre that date, and your abstinence, and the, the work you did in recovery versus now, because a lot of people perceive recovery in the beginning as so intense and so committed, and then you can kind of back off because you've got this, which as a recovering person, you and I know that's not true. Explain, if you would, to the audience, what is different about your recovery journey and what you use to maintain your recovery today that was different than pre-relapse?
1: Yeah, I used to see. This is a great question. I, I I used to see my recovery as part of me. I didn't see it as all of me. And I, you know, I was treated at Hazel in '89. I was treated again at Hazel in '91. I had that period of of abstinence between '91 and '94. Uh, I thought I'd sort of put my illness behind me. Um, I wasn't denying anything about the past, and I had the the fundamental tools at Hazel and, as we were then called now Hazel and Betty Ford, but Hazel, they'd given me the tools of, of, recovery, which not only was about abstinence, but is all about those components of the mind and the body and the spirit. And I, I knew them. And for a while there in those early nineties, I sort of worked them quote unquote, but I, I just saw my recovery as part of me. I didn't see it as all of me. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I remember my counselor at Hazel and George Weller, said to me that the only way we coast is downhill and you know i was coasting um but i wasn't coasting uphill i wasn't coasting up in my recovery i was coasting down into something tricky and that happened in 94. so when i came out of that crack house in 94 and went back to treatment and stopped trying to do things my way i i knew that i needed to put my recovery first that doesn't mean that i don't think about other things first or in the beginning of the day or during the course of the day. But I began to embrace my identity as somebody who um, needed to be in recovery. I define recovery differently today than I did in the old days. And we can come back to that. But to the point about service work, um, i have found my vocation i got really lucky maybe i was blessed i don't know i got hired by hazel in 1996 and by jane knockin who was uh, uh, an executive in the organization and she took my resume plucked my resume out of a hundred a stack of a hundred and i got the job and i wasn't probably the most qualified for it i got the job from that time on, Margaret, I began to realize the importance of my recovery in the context of not just my own life, but in in the work that I do. Mm. Um, that wasn't that work wasn't going to protect me from the disease being cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient, but it was going to give me a purpose. And I think that purpose, that vocation, that voice. Um, is all about me, you know, standing up and speaking out and exposing myself as a person that I am and, and thus helping other people. And so I think helping other people has helped me more than anything that I could do as it relates to my own recovery more than going to recovery meetings, more than getting on my knees, more than um, working in my recovery program. It's that responsibility and that commitment to other people. Even in this dialogue that you and I are having, knowing that there's somebody out there that's going to hear this and want help, it is that commitment to other people that I think helps me more than anything.
0: Well said. I think that uh, the piece that comes to mind for me and where I'd love to go a little bit with you is you've had this disease on every side of your life. Yes. Not only live it, as a person in long-term recovery, thanks to your recovery work and the higher power that you believe in, but you've also experienced it in people's lives that you tremendously love. I hear from every relationship point of view, this was the worst or that was the worst or this was the most challenging. And I'd love you to share with the audience from your experience is there one relationship that was more difficult to navigate when it comes to being a loved one of someone with this disease than another?
1: Oh, that's a hard question. Um, in Broken, the mother of my na- now three children, Henry and Thomas, were little when, when we lived in Atlanta and, and I had my recurrence of use uh tom henry was 20 months old thomas was five or six months old we subsequently allison and i had a move back to minnesota and and our daughter nancy was born in 97 um so the mother of of our three children allison um you know she was formative in the book she's a hero in some ways because she's stuck by me mm-hmm. but but allison will be the first to tell you um and I think she's a fan of this podcast. So um I want to be respectful here, but also authentic and honest. Um she uh and I will I make a reference to it in the towards the end of the Broken. Um she struggles mightily with mental health issues that she has for a long, long time. And um what most people don't know if you just read Broken is that our relationship didn't survive. It didn't survive my humanness, and it didn't survive. Her struggles with mental health, uh, which she's open about. And we've talked about it because we're friends today. We're not married. And that, for me, was probably the most difficult process to go through because she was the love of my life. She was the mother of my three children. Uh, We had met during the early recovery process. And for me not to be able to save, quote, unquote, save her, for me not to be able to steer her to a safe harbor, um, for me to um, experience the codependency that I subsequently learned I also suffer with, <laughs> which you don't find in Broken necessarily. Uh, for for me for the story not to end the way it ended in Broken or the way that I would want it to end, um, that has been very, that was very difficult for me, very painful for me. And, you know, that's why I'm a double winner today. You know, I don't say that in Broken because Broken came out in 06 and Allison and I separated shortly thereafter and and we were divorced. I can't remember if it was 08 or 09, but the bottom line was that there was a whole other part to my story, which was about my coming to terms with the reality that I'm also a family member. And I suffered mightily, not in the case of of, of substance use, but in the case of mental illness and my powerlessness over it. So that was the most difficult part for me, Margaret.
0: When you look at powerlessness over the people you love, it's very evident when I talk to people who are in recovery with their own chemical addiction, mental health issues, behavioral addictions... They report until they get some clarity in their recovery and some time in the rooms, they don't truly understand the impact on their family. Right. Would you, A, agree with that, and B, speak to whether Allison's experience and your powerlessness over that kind of brought it to a deeper level of understanding?
1: Yeah, I don't think I ever was in denial candidly about the impact that my use had on the people that matter to me, the people that loved me. And I love, I mean, I, that it was pretty apparent. I, I left a lot of wreckage behind when I left New York to come out to treatment in Minnesota in 1989, I left a lot of, uh, bruises on the hearts and souls of the people that loved me when i continued to use a relapse and you know i damaged allison when i went back out in 1994 so i i I wasn't in any denial about that what i was mostly in denial about was my own inability to stop others from the same thing that i've been unable to stop in my own life uh, I used to always, candidly, Margaret, I used to always think that the most difficult thing in my life was to let go of substances, right? Yeah. Um, to surrender to the fact that I'm powerless over alcohol and other drugs. I used to think that was the most difficult thing to do. I mean, I couldn't do it. I'd be, I, I'd, I'd do it and go to treatment and pick up again, and back and forth. And then in 94, I did let go of it. What, well, that's hard. Don't get me wrong. That's hard. But what I learned is it's much harder to let go of other people.
0: For sure. People
1: in those dynamics, including, you know, especially those that I care for, those that I love and those that I could swear I can save, <sighs> you know? And so I sort of came to, um, to that realization much later on. And I didn't come to it because of a substance use issue. I came to it because, um, well, let me just tell you. In 2007 or 2008, I started going to Al-Anon to fix my marriage and fix my wife, right? Those are noble causes, right? Well, I'm going to go to Al-Anon in St. Paul, where I live, uh, to fix my marriage and fix my wife. And what I discovered was that, well, I I failed at both of those. (laughs) I didn't fix my marriage and I didn't fix my wife. What I learned in that experience is that the only thing that I can fix is me to the extent that I'm still fixable. And I am fixable. We all are fixable. We can all be get to be better people, even though we're still imperfect. And that was eye-opening for me. Later on, I would learn that same principle, that same approach as it relates to my own children. And so that's another story. But but yeah, I mean, I, I knew the damage I had caused. I did not realize how damaging that powerlessness over people could be for somebody like me until i figured it out and i figured it out in a very painful way i hit bottom stone cold sober in 2008
0: yep Mm. and i think also you speak to the the pain of a person who doesn't have a substance use disorder who is witnessing someone on that path and the pain of powerlessness of not being able to do a damn thing about it you can love them you can offer them help But at the end of the day, like you had to learn, you had no power to change. Allison. William offers so much clarity and evidence of addiction being a family disease. If you have not had the opportunity to read his book, Broken, I highly recommend it. William will be back with us again next week, where we will go further into his story of his substance use disorder and family recovery. Recovery is full of layers. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.